All right, good evening, everybody. Uh, appreciate you guys being with us tonight for the Matthew class. You can open to Matthew chapter 8, if you would, please. Matthew chapter 8. Mareka, if you're watching, I appreciate you doing the music. Look forward to more of that. And I don't have a lot of announcements for you guys tonight. Uh, there will be a Matthew exam soon. I, I have not uh, put it together yet because it'll be for the first seven chapters. In the past, I've, I've given more tests on fewer chapters. This year, we're going to put more chapters and fewer tests. So I'll have that put together for you soon. Uh, and please don't forget about the Galatians exam. Many of you sent in the Romans exam, which I appreciate. Uh, we're in Matthew chapter 8, and we'll begin in verse 1. But before we do, let's bow our heads and begin with a word of prayer. Father, tonight we appreciate the opportunity to have a Bible. Lord, the breath in our lungs, the food you gave us today to eat, the opportunity to talk to you and spend time with you today and to hear from you. And that's what we desire tonight, to spend time in your presence to learn from your book. Please teach us, God. Prepare us, Lord. I know some of the people watching tonight, eventually, Lord, you're going to put them into a full-time ministry. Please, God, would you use tonight's lesson as just another building block in, in molding that person into the minister you want him or her to be. Father, thank you for this privilege. We ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, Matthew 8. I, If I had to give a name to this chapter. Uh, I, would, I would name it Miracles That Verify the Messiah. Miracles That Verify the Messiah. And it, that, that title is going to be fitting for several, I think probably the next three or four chapters that is going to be our primary focus. Matthew is reporting, going to be reporting on various things that Jesus did that validate his claim as the Messiah, especially these next couple chapters. Uh, the outline that I'll give you for this chapter, number one, cleansing of the leper, verses one to four, cleansing of the leper. Uh, you also, now a lot of these stories as well, you'll find in Mark and Luke, which we call synoptic gospels, because they all line up and, and share some of uh, the same stories. Uh, the next section, number two, curing sicknesses, verses 5 to 15. And there will be two subpoints to this under curing sicknesses. Subpoint A, the centurion servant, that's verses 5 to 13. And then Peter's mother in law, verses 14 to 15. And then uh, number three, part number three, casting out devils, verses 16 and 17. And then verses 18 to 27, number four, command to go over the sea. Now there is a subsection to this, so subpoint A, Jesus gives a charge to the would-be disciples. And we'll talk more about um, that statement when we get to it, but verses 18 to 22, you see Jesus giving some, uh, some qualifying statements to what it means, what it will take to be his disciple. And then for the last point, Verses 23 to 34, I have called coastal maniacs helped. Jesus is going to cast out the devils from the maniacs of Gadara. Uh, I needed a word that started with C, right? So coastal maniacs helped. There's two things that 
Jesus is manifesting power over throughout the chapter. Number one, He manifests power over the natural realm. This you can see through the cleansing and healing of sicknesses, cleansing of leprosy, and also His command over nature, the, the ability to calm the sea. And then there's also power manifested over the spiritual realm. He's able to cast out devils and they, they cannot... Um, they, they cannot go against His Word. They have to do as He says. So He manifests power throughout this chapter. Now, chapter 8 and verse 1, it says, When He was come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed Him. Well, this would follow along with what we saw at the end of chapter 7. He taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. What Jesus had just preached in the Sermon on the Mount made a lot of sense. It made sense doctrinally. It made sense practically. It made sense prophetically. It was very hard to contradict anything that Jesus was saying. And naturally, multitudes, they're drawn to this powerful figure. Jesus had already been doing miracles before the Sermon on the Mount. And now when they hear the preaching mixed with it, Jesus is, is offering the people something that they haven't seen or heard. So there's a massive following here in the beginning. But you and I know, and we've already looked at it, I believe, in the book of Matthew, this multitude that's following Him, by the time you get to the cross, the multitude is crying out, away with Him, crucify Him. So it's, it's amazing how fickle the multitude uh, can be. As long as the things of God are entertaining and easy, the multitude is there. Mark that down. If it's entertaining and if it's easy, You'll have a you're guaranteed to have a large crowd. As soon as you get down to the nitty-gritty, as they say, the meat and potatoes of the ministry of being a disciple, that's what separates, again, as they say, the men from the boys. Verse 2, And behold, there came a leper and worshipped him. The way I understand it, there, there's a, a timing issue here. As soon as, and not a bad one, but as soon as Jesus has come down from the sermon, this leper approaches him. The reason I point that out is if you read the story about the cleansing of the leper in Mark's gospel or in Luke's, I don't believe you'll get the same exact preciseness of the timing. And that's fine. The other gospels aren't, aren't uh, suggesting that there's a different timing to this. I find it interesting because whenever I am able to gather with all the saints and as soon as, soon as a sermon is done, it's very normal, and most of you guys will, will testify to this, that there forms a bit of a cue, and people want to come and they have questions or need help or, or advice. And as soon as Jesus is done preaching, here comes this leper. Now, you'll find this throughout Jesus' life. As soon as He's done with one thing, here comes another person needing help. As soon as you get into the ministry and start providing something viable to the people, you're, you're actually helping. You're not just... Um, in it for, for the fame of the money. You'll find that there is never going to be an end of people needing something. And I don't mean that in a bad way. It's wonderful that there's always something to do, someone to help, someone to teach, someone to witness to. But you're going to have to balance that as well. We're going to see that Jesus in this chapter, He, he gets a nap, <laughs> which is a very practical thought. But if you realize how busy He is, He preaches a sermon, He's working miracles, Eventually, even Jesus needs to take a break and get a nap, but we'll see that 
in a few verses. Verse 2, Behold, there came a leper and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. This is an act of worship or adoration because he's recognizing that if Jesus wants to, Jesus can cure the incurable disease. Now, leprosy today is treated with a, a multiple number of drugs. Uh, you know, a, I can't remember the exact name or term they give it, multiple drug therapy or something, I don't know. But they, they do purport to be able to cure uh, leprosy. I, I have never dealt with it firsthand, so I'm going to be cautious uh, uh, making medical statements on that. But at the time that Jesus was ministering, leprosy was incurable. Science had no answers for it. But this leper realizes that Jesus is not just another guy. That if Jesus wants to, he can say the word and the leprosy is gone. So it's an act of worship or adoration to recognize what, what Jesus is able to do. Uh, we can also do that. right? Verse 3, Jesus put forth his hand and touched him. Now that was a big no-no. You're not supposed to be touching lepers. Lepers are not supposed to be approaching people. They are, uh, right, the public, they're supposed to cover their mouth and say, unclean, unclean, and that way people know to keep their distance. But Jesus, again, not the ordinary man, and he's going to manifest his power over the natural realm here. So he put forth his hand and touched him, saying, I will, I want to. Be thou clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed, immediately. Uh, let me point this out. The leper said, if thou wilt. And Jesus said, I will. Jesus could have corrected him and said, it's always the will of God for diseases to be healed or cured. But he didn't. Because when you study the scripture, you find very clearly that it is not always the will of God for somebody to be healthy. I would say it's always the will of man for man to be healthy, but not God. And that's something we cover more in discipleship in the lesson on healing, that God can use sicknesses for His glory. Uh, in verse number 3, it says, Immediately his leprosy was cleansed. In verse 4, Jesus saith unto him, See thou tell no man. Now why would he do that? Well, when you read in Mark's gospel what happened, you understand it a little better. At the end of Mark chapter 1, you have this story, and it says that the man, he did go show himself to the priest as best we can tell, but as he was doing it, it says he blazed abroad the matter. He went and told everyone he could about this great miracle that Jesus had done. And in so doing, Jesus got inundated with people and their needs and requests, and so much so that Jesus could no longer perform the ministry that he wanted to do in that area. He had to go to a different place. So Jesus had a reason for saying, don't tell anyone. It's not that he wanted to hide the miracle necessarily, but Jesus had a greater uh, audience in mind, a greater, what can I say, focus or, or, or group that he wanted to reach. And he knew that if this guy starts spreading the word, I'm going to be too busy. I won't be able to preach like I want and minister like I want. Uh, something else you want to notice in verse 4, it says, But go thy way, show thyself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a testimony unto them. By going to the altar and offering the gift, right? Remember, Jesus is operating under the Old Covenant. Leviticus chapter 13 and chapter 14 deal... Uh, with leprosy 
and how it was to be diagnosed and how it was to be dealt with uh, in public, the quarantining and all of that, and also what type of sacrifice to give if the leprosy had cleared up or gone away or whatever the case might have been. Uh, you, can, you can go through those chapters and read all the different variations. So this man, his leprosy is now cleansed. When he goes to the altar and offers up the gift, that will be his opportunity. That is the testimony. This, if you wanted to liken this to something in the New Testament, it's, you could preach it as leprosy as a type of sin. Jesus, if he wants to, he can reach out. And on this case, right, he wants to save everyone. So the, answer, the, the sinner needs to come to him and says, Lord, please save me. He needs to acknowledge Jesus' ability to save. And then Jesus reaches out the hand and says, I will, and touches the untouchable, the unclean, that's us. Takes the sin away immediately, and we have salvation immediately. But then he says, all right, as a testimony, go down, the, go to the temple, go there to the church, and, and follow along with what I've told the church to do, right? Because in this case, follow along with what I told the priest there at the tabernacle to do, or at the temple. So if you wanted to go to the New Testament side, that's how you would preach it. Which leads me to say this. Any of the miracles that we read about Jesus doing, almost all of them will fit into an, it's an allegorical type sermon where you could take the miracle and preach about salvation. Right? So this is an actual physical miracle. Just because this man was cleansed of leprosy did not necessarily grant him eternal life. We understand that. But the cleansing of the physical is a picture of how Jesus can cleanse the spiritual. So you, you would take leprosy as sin, Jesus as the Savior, and the blood washing away the uncleanness, and you could preach it like that. Almost every miracle will fit into that uh, category somehow. All right, verse 5. It says, And when Jesus was entered into Capernaum, Capernaum... If you look at the Sea of Galilee, right, you've seen me draw it on the board hundreds of times, the little map of Israel. You have the Sea of Galilee at the top, and then coming down you have the Jordan River, and then you have the Dead Sea under that. So if you look at the Sea of Galilee up at the top, the northwest corner, I guess that's that thing, the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee, you'll find Capernaum. When Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion beseeching him. Now this, I want you to take your Bible, look at Luke chapter 7, just quickly. Luke chapter 7, and do a quick comparison with how Luke reported the story. So in Matthew it says, when Jesus came to Capernaum, which was his home base, remember, for his ministry, here, there came a centurion. But look in Luke 7 verse 1, Now when he had ended all his sayings in the audience of the people, he entered into Capernaum. And a certain centurion's servant, who was dear unto him, was sick and ready to die. And when he heard of Jesus, he sent unto him the elders of the Jews, beseeching him that he would come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they besought him instantly, saying that he was worthy for whom he should do this, for he loveth our nation, and he hath built us a synagogue. Then Jesus went with them. He was not, not uh, far from the house. This is, uh, the centurion sent friends to him, saying, Lord, trouble not thyself. I've read that much of the story because I want you to see the centurion never actually met Jesus. He sends the elders of the Jews to get Jesus' attention to come 
to start coming towards the house. And then as those elders are coming back with Jesus, the centurion sends friends to talk with Jesus. As I understand it, it, it doesn't appear that the centurion ever actually met him. Now, some people have raised a concern with this to say, but Matthew says the centurion actually came. So this is not a contradiction. This is something every author has the prerogative to choose how many details he wants to put into his story. So especially with these historical accounts like this, we call this telescoping. Telescoping. You can zoom in or you can zoom out. So if you want to give a quick, broad overview of the story, right? You don't expect as many details. You just get the big points and then you, you go on to the next story. You can telescope in, I guess, zoom in and, and try to pick up more small details. So zooming in, we would have Luke's account. He tells us exactly how the centurion got the message to Jesus. So it, at the end of the day, the truth of the story is still intact. The centurion sent a message to Jesus. These are the centurion's words, his desires. He might have sent a, a, some other people on his behalf, but it is still the centurion being represented. Matthew is simply giving us a quick, broad overview of what happened because he's, he's giving us several examples in this one chapter to focus in on one point, and that is Jesus his claim as the Messiah has been verified through the miracles, the public miracles that he's done. All right, so back in Matthew 8, verse 5, When Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion, beseeching him and saying, Lord, my servant lieth at home, sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. All right, palsy is, uh, we would say, paralyzed, the root word in Greek that gives us palsy is paralytikos, where we get the word paralytic, which just means it's the state of being paralyzed if someone's a paralytic. Uh, so we don't know exactly what was paralyzed. It maybe he was, uh, what would, we, I, forgive me if I get the term wrong, wrong, quadriplegic, that he's not able to move from the neck down. I, whatever the case was, he was in a lot of pain and not able to move. Uh, not, not in control of his body like he wanted to be. Grievously tormented. Verse 7, And Jesus saith unto him, I will come and heal him. Now, believe it or not, that small statement, that's the key to the story. Jesus said, I will come and heal him. Once you have the promise of the Savior, that's enough. Now, you'll see as the story goes on how important that statement was. Somehow, I would assume when the elders of the Jews went to talk to Jesus and explain the story, Jesus said, I'll come, I'll, I'll heal him. Somebody must have run ahead and told the centurion what Jesus had said. And then the centurion sent friends out to say this next part. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I'm not worthy that thou shouldest come under my roof, but speak the word only and my servant shall be healed. This is tremendous. This man, who is a Gentile, by the way, he says, Jesus, you, you don't have to bother with coming all the way here. I don't need a big show. I just, you've already said that you're going to heal him. Just say the word and it'll be done. I, you don't have to physically show up here in order for me to believe it or, or for this to, be, uh, to, to actually happen. 
what a wonderful statement about the, the authority of Jesus' words. This man, he believes that Jesus can do it without being there to manipulate anything. There's no funny business. You just say it and it'll be done. How different is that compared to what goes on in so many different healing, uh, what can I say, healing meetings where there's so much show and entertainment factored in and, and mixed in with it. If you really have the gift of healing and you're truly this miraculous gift, like the apostles, and you're truly interested in just preaching the gospel and helping people, you don't seek to bring attention to your gift. You just get the gospel out. The gift comes, it's almost secondary, right? But I don't want to get sidetracked on that. Verse, um, verse 9, he says, For I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this man, Go, and he goeth. And to another, Come, and he cometh. And to my servant, Do this, and he doeth it. So the centurion, he is over a hundred men, right? A captain, the leader of a hundred men in, in this army. He says, I know how it is to give an authoritative word, to give a command. And if I say do, if I say come and go, it just happens. He says, I, I know what it means to be an authority. I respect it when someone says do and it gets done. So he, his authority in the army and the ability to command people to do things, he recognizes that Jesus is able to do that with any disease. He can just say, disease be gone, and it's gone. So this man has a tremendous faith in a man whom apparently he's never even met. He's obviously heard of him. He's heard the stories. He's heard the report. And he believed it. Right? He didn't just make up this idea in his head that this Jesus guy can probably do this, and then because he believed what his imagination had created, that's not the kind of faith we're talking about here. This man's faith was in the stories that he had heard, and he knew that Jesus was a man of his word. And if he said it, it was authoritative, it would happen. Guys, do you realize the opportunity we have? When we read the New Testament, we are reading the report of other men what they saw, what they heard, what they did. And we are putting our faith in these reports. And then we turn our focus to Jesus and say, Jesus, I believe what I've heard. And I believe you can do this, that, and the other thing. You just say it and it's going to be done. Look at verse 10. When Jesus heard it, He marveled. How many times do you think Jesus marveled while He was on the earth? What would it take to make the Creator of the universe marvel? Stop and think about that for a second. For Him to go, wow. Right? Have you ever marveled? Have you ever been blown away by something? This is what blew Jesus away. So that, is, that is outstanding. That is incredible. When He heard it, He marveled and said to them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. This is coming from a Gentile. He says, I haven't seen anybody in Israel with this kind of faith. That is some great faith. Now, what, what is faith? Believing what God said. In this case, 
which I still think is, it, it holds true with the comment I just made, believing what Jesus said. Of course, I see that as one and the same. This is God in the flesh. But faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. What is faith? It is believing what God said. He says, I haven't found this kind of faith in, in any Jew, which leads him to say this next part. Because remember, the, the Jewish mindset was that they were going to get their kingdom and rule over their enemies, squash the enemies. Gentiles really didn't play a part in this kingdom that was supposed to come. Not in the Jewish mindset. In the Old Testament, it was prophesied that that would happen, but Jews weren't very fond of Gentiles, obviously. Jesus, he's going to say some things that the Jews didn't sit well with them. I, verse 11, I say unto you that many shall come from the east and west, which is an, another way to refer to Gentiles, and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Now that's only possible if Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are going to physically resurrect, right? They're going to sit down together in the kingdom. So now he's, he's telling the Jews that are in the audience there, these Gentiles are going to come in. But look what he says next, verse 12, but the children of the kingdom. So that is the, the, the rightful heirs, the, the, the Jewish people that should have inherited the kingdom. The children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, as we know as Jesus progressed through his ministry, he would use that phrase more than once. And he's referring to uh, hell, the bottomless pit and uh, outer darkness. That this, he's explaining that Jews will be cast out into hell fire while Gentiles come into the kingdom. Now, for you and I, that's, that's a welcome thought because, you know, we're Gentiles. We know that God has accepted us in uh, to the body of Christ. We're part of God's plan. We get that. But at the time, this would have been a tremendously offensive statement, right? This is the kind of thing that if it were to happen today, everybody would blow up and tweet and Facebook and everything would just go nuts with how rude, how uncouth, how unpolitically correct, or non-politically correct, this statement was for, for Jesus to make. Verse 13, <clears throat> now he turns this attention back to the situation at hand. And Jesus said unto the centurion, Go thy way. Now, obviously, this message is going through the friends, the elders of the Jews, and it's getting to uh, the centurion at the end. But he go thy way, and as thou hast believed, so be it done unto thee and his servant was healed in the selfsame hour." Now, I have seen some people take verse 13, and they just take part of it. They don't use the whole verse. As thou hast believed, so be it done unto thee. They just grab that phrase, and they create entire doctrines around one phrase from one verse. That's, what, a third of the verse? And they say, whatever I believe is going to happen, it will happen. That's why I mentioned earlier, this isn't a matter of the centurion just imagining what Jesus could possibly do and then Jesus fulfills whatever uh, imaginations come into the centurion's head. That's not how faith works. Faith is not, I believe God can do whatever I want. That's not faith. Faith is believing that God will do what He said He will do. So in this particular case, 
the centurion believed that Jesus could do what he said he would do, that is, heal the servant, so the message is fitting, as thou hast believed. So I'm going to do exactly what you asked because you believed my promise of being able to do it. Verse 14. Now we get a, another miracle. It says, When Jesus was come into Peter's house, now remember Peter and his brother Andrew, they're from the north, so their house was obviously nearby. And uh, while they're passing through on the ministry, they're going to stop in at Peter's place. It says he was coming to Peter's house. He saw his wife's mother laid and sick of a fever. And he touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she arose and ministered unto them." Now, to be honest, those two verses, they offer some detail, right? But not a lot. And this is pretty much all of the detail that you're going to get, whether you look in Mark or Luke, that there's not a lot of extra information that we're given about it. No names, nothing like that. It just says, he healed Peter's mother-in-law. So imagine that. Jesus even cares for mother-in-laws, right? I and mean, that's, wow, the grace of God. It's something. Um, this, to be sick of a fever. Now, I've, I've had malaria seven times. I know how devastating a really bad fever can be. So I understand that it's a, it's a bad sickness, but it's not quite on the level of leprosy, is it? Or paralyzed. So why put this story in here? Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us... It, it doesn't tell us to rank diseases and which one's worse than the other. I, I am, I'm going to take one step. I'm going to give an educated guess here. Please do not think that I'm trying to teach a biblical doctrine at the moment. I'm just making an educated guess that the reason this story appears is because it could be verified. Right? When you look at the stories that are given in the Gospels, you could go back to the people involved in these stories and verify how it happened. Not only could you verify with that individual, but there are also witnesses that saw that individual uh, be healed or be raised from the dead or whatever it was. So there was a way to verify it. And that's why I believe these particular miracles are listed in the Gospels, because they, they were the easiest to verify. So I'm assuming that Peter's mother-in-law, uh, she was still around when the Gospels were written and people could go and, and speak with her and verify this miracle. That's just my educated guess as to why this, this story is included. Because as I say, I, it, when you read about sick of a fever, it just doesn't seem to be that groundbreaking uh, compared to the other sicknesses. But I will tell you this, there, there is something profitable in it nonetheless. Peter's married. Now that may not seem like such an outstanding statement, but if you grew up Catholic like I did, this was quite a shock because in the Catholic Church, the priests are not allowed to marry. They have to take a vow of celibacy. They are, it's forbidden to marry. Now, I use that term purposefully because in 1 Timothy 4, one of the doctrines of a devil is to forbid to marry. So I don't want to spend all night talking about that, but this shows us that the apostles were able to have wives. They did have wives. So if this is the first pope, he has a wife. 
Now, the Catholic Church will happily tell you that in the early days, popes did have wives and priests had wives, and celibacy only came in, if my memory serves, I believe it's like in the 1200s they made that law. I, I think that's right, so I speak under correction there. Whatever the case might be, 1 Timothy 4 stands strong. It's wrong to forbid people to marry, and the example here, the apostles, they, they're married. So why would it be that people in the ministry today could not be married? It, it just isn't consistent to have the law that they do in their church. All right, verse 16. And when, even, when the even was come, man, he did all this before evening. Whew. When the even was come, they brought unto him many that were possessed with devils. And he cast out the spirits with his word and healed all that were sick. With his word. He didn't need magic potions. He didn't need to do a seance, nothing like that. He didn't need a, a, you know, a silver bullet or a sharpened wooden stake, you know, like you see in movies. He would just say the word, and the unclean spirits would go out and healed all their sick just by saying it. This the power of His word. Now, verse 16, you, every now and then we do find these kind of verses in, in, in the Gospels. It's a blanket statement that Jesus did all these miracles of, of this variety casting out unclean spirits, healing sicknesses. John 20, uh, no, no, 21. John 21, verse 25. There's a verse like this where he says, if, if we would record all the miracles that Jesus did, the books, there wouldn't be enough books in the world that could contain them all. So it's a blanket statement that just says he did a lot of miracles. Now, that does not mean that, well, we, we can say, we can point that out that this is a unique verse because usually the Bible does give great detail when it mentions a miracle so that it can be verified. But Matthew is making a different point, and the point is in verse 17, that it might be fulfilled. So why was Jesus doing all of these miracles? That it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. So I'm going to ask you to take your Bible, hold Matthew 8. We need to compare Scripture with Scripture, get Isaiah, and I want to first show you Isaiah 35, and then we're going to go to the cross-reference that Matthew quoted in Isaiah 53. So look first at chapter 35. The numbers are inversed there. Isaiah 35, and I want to read a few verses with you. Verse 3, starting at verse 3. This is something we cover in discipleship, so hopefully it... Uh, You'll remember this. Isaiah 35, 3. Strengthen ye the weak hands and confirm the feeble knees. So how would you strengthen a Jew before the coming of the Messiah? Because he's getting discouraged under Gentile oppression. Verse 4. Say to them that are of a fearful heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, even God with a recompense. He will come and save you. How will you know when God has come? Which, by the way, I think this verse speaks loudly to the idea that the Messiah is a divine or a deity. He is a, he's, he, it's God coming down to save it. Even the Jewish nation today think that the Messiah is just a man. I, I think these verses show otherwise, but verse 5, When God comes to save him, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. And the, deer, uh, deers, the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap as an heart, and the tongue of the dumb sing. And then it goes on to talk about 
other changes that will happen in nature. Now, had the Jews accepted Jesus as the Messiah, then the latter half of verse 6 and verse 7, all of this would have been fulfilled 2,000 years ago. Because once Jesus establishes His kingdom, He also will regenerate nature and, and reset it back to a paradise type of atmosphere. But you can see that as Jesus came, He was fulfilling these physical miracles, these healings, to, to confirm and to encourage and strengthen these Jews who have been oppressed for so many hundreds of years. Uh, now come to Isaiah 53, and let's take a longer look at the quote that Matthew gave us. So we're going to compare Matthew 8:17 and Isaiah 53, verse 4. Isaiah 53, verse 4. So it says here, Isaiah 53, 4, Surely He hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Now that's as far as Matthew quoted. He goes, we can finish the verse, Yet we did esteem Him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. So they thought that when Jesus was getting smacked around, they thought God was punishing Jesus. Uh, they esteemed Him smitten of God. Now, we're going to concentrate on the first half of the verse. We know that this is speaking about the Messiah. Matthew draws our attention to that. We know that from everything else around it in Isaiah 53 as well. But notice Isaiah wrote it the way that it's translated for us. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Matthew 8:17 himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. So some people have raised, again, a concern here to say, why does it say two different things? Because griefs and sorrows, this and in Matthew it's infirmities and sicknesses. It seems as if uh, Matthew is quoting from a, diff a slightly different source. Now a lot of Bible scholars like to say that the New Testament writers were using something called the Septuagint, which was a Greek translation of the Old Testament. I don't believe that they were, and that's a subject that I'm going to, I'm not going to get deep into. It's something we deal with in manuscript evidence class and in, in other classes. We'll talk more about that. Biblical survey, we talk about it. However, I do want to point out, for those of you that have already had the class, Matthew, the, the quotation we have, the Greek wording that Matthew used, it's not found in the Septuagint either. Which means Matthew, when he wrote his gospel, he wasn't looking at the LXX, the Septuagint. So that kind of undoes what a lot of the biblical scholars say about the apostles relying on the Septuagint. They, they weren't, not in this case anyway. Uh, furthermore, we need to examine a little deeper Isaiah 53, griefs and sorrows. Now, if you look at the Hebrew words behind those, so griefs, the word is, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, koli, koli. And that, that Hebrew word can be translated malady, anxiety, calamity, disease, griefs, or sickness. So, griefs would be a very broad word to use, and underneath the category of grief, you could include infirmities. I believe that's what Matthew is doing. When he saw Isaiah 53, that the Messiah, he came to bear our griefs, carry our sorrows, then 
underneath the heading of grief, infirmities. An infirmity is a shortcoming, especially uh, a physical shortcoming. It's used in that context quite often. And then carried our sorrows. Matthew wrote it as sicknesses. So again, sorrows, broad category, underneath which sicknesses would be one of them. Now the Greek words that Matthew used for infirmities is asthenia, which I sounds much like, um, I want to say anesthetics, but maybe not. Infirmities, that's, that's like I said, shortcomings, especially in the physical sense. And then the word nosos for sicknesses, that's just diseases. That's just a physical thing. Matthew is telescoping, I think. He's focused in on, on the particular things, the infirmities and diseases that fit under the heading of what the Messiah would do of bearing and, and carrying our griefs and sorrows. Now, the, the word griefs, as I've said, it can be translated as disease. Now, griefs is, a, is the right word, but disease is something you would understand that word to be pointing to. And, and by the way, in Deuteronomy 7, verse 15, the word, this, that Hebrew word, is translated as sickness. So we can see that griefs and sicknesses in the Hebrew mind, when he hears that, he's thinking of the same thing. And then the word sorrows in Hebrew is makobe, and that word can be translated grief, pain, or sorrow. So sorrow is a good translation. There's nothing wrong with that. In Job 33:19, it's translated as pain instead of sorrows. And it's specifically talking about physical pain there, pain in the bones even. In Jeremiah 51 verse 8, same thing. It's translated as pain. It talks about needing medicine to treat that. So here's what I believe happened. Matthew has access to the Hebrew version of Isaiah. There was a Greek version of the Old Testament by the time of Matthew. I get that. He might have seen that. But I believe he also had access to the Hebrew version of it. And when he reads the word griefs and sorrows, and he knows what they go with. In the Hebrew mind, griefs, th that would be the heading and under which sicknesses and infirmities would fall. Sorrows, that would include pain and sickness and so forth. So when Matthew writes about it, he just telescopes in and focuses in on the particular grief, the particular sorrow, that the Messiah came to carry. So I see no problem with how Matthew quoted this. Remember that the Holy Spirit is the one leading these men to write, and the Holy Spirit is the one watching over the preservation of these words. So the Holy Spirit is able to use the wiggle room that you have in the work of translation. Right? When you come from Hebrew to English, one Hebrew word can go six different ways as I've just explained to you. And the same thing with Greek to English. You can translate it various ways. Any two languages, you can take one word and then there might be three or four various ways to say that in the next language. So there is wiggle room when it comes to translation. The Holy Spirit uses that wiggle room to telescope in and focus in on one particular point. And the Holy Spirit, as the author of the book, as the one giving us and protecting, preserving the words of God, he has, I want to say, written his own commentary. By using Matthew's words, it helps, under, helps us understand Isaiah 53 even better. Now, there's another thing we need to talk about, Matthew 8:17, because this verse is often used to prove that 
when Jesus came, he came to take away all sicknesses. Well, that's a very, that's a broad statement. Did Jesus come to take sickness away? Was that his primary goal? No, no. Is the taking away of sickness part of the atonement? When Jesus died on the cross, does that give us access to physical healing? Because Isaiah 53, a few verses later, it says, in his stripes, we are healed. So that, that is used by a lot of people in connection with this to say, you see, Isaiah was prophesying that through the atonement, through the, the work on the cross, we have access to physical healing. And that way, all, all sicknesses should be done away with. Number one, the evidence, the, the historical record doesn't bear, way, doesn't bear that out. We know that Christians have remained sick, even the most faithful Christians, right? Paul. So that, that's not consistent with that teaching of in the atonement there's, there's healing. I will say this, though. Because of the work of Christ on the cross, I have access to this predestinated plan of God in which one day I will receive a glorified body. In that sense, the atonement provides physical healing, but not until the resurrection. So if you wanted to make that connection, okay. When Isaiah says, with his stripes we are healed, I believe he's referring to a spiritual healing of the soul. And 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, I believe will back that up. That it's, it's a reference to the forgiveness of sins, and he's the shepherd of our souls. You can see that if you look up the cross-reference. All right, Matthew 8, verse 18. It says, Now when Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he gave commandment to depart unto the other side. Again, it's not because he doesn't want to help them. He's done what he came to do there. And now there's other people that need to hear the truth and need to see the truth. So on he goes. Notice at the end of the verse, though, he gave commandment to depart unto the other side. Now that seems like a very mundane fact, but I believe it's going to be very important as we continue through the story. Verse 19, And a certain scribe came and said unto him, Master, so there they are trying to get into the boat to go across the sea, and somebody, if I understand it correctly, somebody comes in and wants to ask a question real quick before he gets in the boat. A certain scribe came and said unto him, Master, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. Isn't that a wonderful commitment? I wish more people would come and say that to me. I, I mean, talking about Christ, but I wish they would make that public commitment to say, listen, I'll follow Christ where, wherever He wants me to go. I'd, I'd love to have people with that attitude. And Jesus did not condemn him for saying this, but He does, he does inform him of the depth of that statement, of the cost involved in making such a commitment. You don't want to say that lightly. You don't want to just say, God, I'll do whatever, whenever. You might have good intentions, but you need to think that through. Luke 14, if you want to be a disciple, sit down and count the cost before you build that tower. He says in verse 20, Jesus saith unto him, The foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. These, these other animals have homes. I don't even have a place that I can call my own where I can go lay my head. Now, he had a home base, right? But he didn't own a home, not his own house. 
If I, you might go as far as to say he didn't even have his own pillow. He has nowhere to lay his head. He says, so if you, if you want to be one of my followers, you better like camping. <laughs> you better be an outdoorsy kind of guy because this isn't the easy life. You're not going to have everything taken care of and you're going to have to possibly give up some of your creature comforts. Now, does this mean that if you're going to be in the ministry, you're not allowed to own a home or a pillow? No, no. Obviously not. But if the calling of God requires sacrifice, then as a disciple, that calling comes first, before your comfort. Before your comfort. I don't mind saying that because I've been faced with this decision. It wasn't comfortable to say goodbye to America. It wasn't comfortable to say goodbye to my family my sister, my dad. America has a lot of nice, very comfortable things. It's a very advanced country. I don't need to tell you that. You know that. And when God said, leave all that behind and go to the poorest country in the world, yeah, all of a sudden those promises that I had made about God, I'll do anything for you, boy, they, they got very real. Very real. But that's part of being a disciple. That's part of following Christ. Verse 21, And another of his disciples said unto him, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. So somebody else wants to follow along just like this other guy. I'll follow you wherever you go. But let me just take care of one thing first. I need to go to my dad's funeral. You know, if somebody lost their father, the last thing I would say is, how dare you go to the funeral? <laughs> now, Jesus, I don't think, put it quite like that. But look at verse 22. But Jesus said unto him, follow me and let the dead bury their dead. Wow. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have said that, but Jesus did. Now, again, does this mean that if somebody's going to be a disciple or a full-time minister for Christ, that they're not allowed to go to funerals? Well, again, obviously not. There are funerals later on that Jesus... Uh, anytime Jesus attended a funeral, the dead rose, by the way. Just know that. But uh, funerals continued to happen in the New Testament times. So that's not... It's not that Jesus is forbidding funerals. But when it comes to the calling of God or my family... You have to put the calling of God ahead of family. That's why Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, you have to hate father, mother, brother, sister. It's, it's not hate as in angry at them. It's hate as in put them second. Right? Biblically, love and hate is separated into what you put first and what, you, what comes after that. So you'll either love the one, hate the other. That's, it's a very polarized look at it. This is a very unique situation that Jesus is talking about here. Jesus, this is a drastic measure, but drastic times call for drastic measures. In Jesus' ministry, right? He's only going to be there a few years. We don't have time for, for any distractions. So if you want to follow, you've got to fall in line right now. So for this man, it was not worth his time to go to his father's funeral. Rather, Jesus has let the dead bury their dead. Let the spiritually dead bury this physically dead man. 
which tells us something about this man's family and his father. Evidently, this was not a very righteous family, right? They, now, I realize we're all spiritually dead in sins and trespasses without being born again. I get that. But for Jesus to refer to these people as dead, bearing the dead, it, it seems to hint that these weren't good folk. Jesus said, listen, man, come on. If you go to that funeral, it's not going, it's not going to further the cause of the kingdom. It's not, going to make any, it's not going to make a positive difference for you. Just come follow. This man had to make a choice. Jesus first, everything else second. That's tough. You know, I've, I've had people after certain sermons down through the years come and say, you know, don't you think you're making Christianity a little more difficult than it needs to be or the standard is, you know, so demanding? Um, guys, I, I, I am not one of these guys that makes up a bunch of petty rules, you know, about how you dress or... I'm not picky about uh, the movies you watch, the music you listen to. I, I, what I mean by that is I'm not going to police that stuff. I don't have time to go around watching over how long your wife's shirt sleeve is. I know some pastors talk about that stuff. I could care. There are some pastors that actually in America, if the wife, if the woman wears a shirt that's cut off here at the shoulder, they, they think that woman's being indecent. And they will rebuke that woman publicly. My goodness. See, I'm not that kind of guy. So I don't, I don't spend a long time talking about standards and trying to make things more difficult than they need to be. I do try to paint an honest picture of what Jesus requires from his disciples. That's it. What we just read right there. That's tough. Verse 23, And when he was entered into a ship, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great tempest in the sea, insomuch that the ship was covered with the waves, Sorry, but he was asleep. Jesus finally got a nap. This was a long day. If you look at all that happened, whew, it's a lot going on. He's had a lot going on, not just that one day, but in, in let's say, the, the two weeks, three weeks. He's, he, it's not like he had a lot of time off. He finally got some sleep. And this storm has kicked up. You know, strangely enough, don't we turn on, like, the ocean sounds? You know, some people use that as background, background noise as they sleep. He had the real thing, but this is a thunderous storm. I mean, this is loud thunder and lightning, all that stuff going on, and Jesus is asleep. Can I just say this as a practical note? If Jesus isn't worried, you don't need to be worried. I understand why the disciples were scared. I would have been scared. But the lesson we learned from this is you don't need to be worried unless He is. Verse 25, His disciples came to Him and awoke Him, saying, Lord, save us. We perish. We're all going to die. Fair enough. I think that's a... I would have said something similar. Verse 26, He saith unto them, Why are ye fearful? O ye of little faith. Every time I look at that statement, it blows me away. Really? Why are you fearful? Is it not obvious? The boat is filling with water. It's covered with waves. Why, why should they not be afraid? Well, verse... 18. He gave the commandment, depart unto the other side. Jesus said they were going to make it. He said, gentlemen, get in the boat. We're going to the other side. You know what I love about this? If you want to allegorize it and turn it into a practical sermon, here is the spiritual lesson you learn. 
When you got saved, Jesus said, all right, you're in the body of Christ. You're going to make it to the other side. You're seated in heavenly places in me. You, you, we're, you're as good as there. But then our life starts filling up with all sorts of storms and difficulties, and we get scared and say, really? Jesus, I think I'm going to perish. And Jesus says, come on now. I told you we're going to the other side. Now, what do you believe more, the thunder or my words? Verse 26, O ye of little faith. Why little faith? They're not trusting what he said. Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. Great calm. Now, this is a wonderful example of the Creator exercising His power over the creation. All He has to do is stand and tell the wind, stop, calm down. And the water just flows, just a small ripple through the water and the wind just gently blowing in the background. Everything's as if there was no storm. Whew. Verse 27, but the men marveled. Yeah, I bet they did, saying, What manner of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? Okay, there is an at least and then at most version to this. What manner of man is this? At the very least, he is the prophet like unto Moses. At the very least. That's, if I'm one of the disciples standing there, that's what I'm thinking. I can't... This is unbelievable what I just saw. If I hadn't seen it with my own eyes, I, I may not believe it. Look at that. He just told creation what to do, and it obeyed. The last guy to do something like this was Moses, who, by the directive of God, stood by the Red Sea, lifted up his rod, and the wind came, and the waters parted. So there was this power over nature. Now, it wasn't Moses that had the power, but God obviously working through him. So at the least, I look at this and think, this is the prophet like unto Moses, at the least. At the most... Right? And what I believe would be a rightful thought. If I'm one of the disciples, I would also be entertaining the idea, this guy might be more than just a man. Because that's not something that men do. It's not, a, it's not like the case with Moses where he goes to the Red Sea and says, in the name of Jehovah, you know. It, it's not as if he, he, he had to call upon... Or, Moses did this by the directive of God. Jesus just stood and talked to the wind. Jesus didn't have to invoke any other name. He just spoke to the wind and it listened, to the sea and it listened. So I, if I'm a disciple, I'm starting to think, Ooh, uh, you know what? This guy, I think he's more than just a man. Now, by this time in the ministry, I don't think Jesus has fully disclosed to them that he is... God manifest in the flesh. I think that's a truth that was gradually revealed as his ministry went on, but this would certainly help prove that. Verse 28, And when he was come to the other side, into the country of the Gergesenes, Gergesenes, that's a word I always struggle, with, struggle to say, uh, it says, There met him two possessed with devils coming out of the tombs, exceeding fierce, so that no man might pass by that way. Now again, Matthew is going to telescope a little bit. He focuses in on one point that the other Gospels don't have. The, we sometimes call this the maniac of Gadara. That was another name for that territory. But in the country of the Gergesenes, there were actually two men possessed with devils. 
Matthew's the only gospel writer to give us that, that information. In Mark's gospel and in Luke's gospel, there's only one maniac or demon-possessed man. Now, it doesn't say in Mark or Luke that there is only one. When you read those stories, it just says there was a man. It doesn't say there was only one man. So there's no contradiction here. Matthew simply gives us additional information. But he doesn't give us as much information as, as especially Mark's gospel. In chapter 5, you get a lot more detail about um, the consequences of being possessed with the, a, a devil. You read there about this tremendous strength, how they would live near the tombs and about the tombs. They would cut themselves with stones. It was a horrible existence that they had. So it says they were possessed with devils coming out of the tombs, exceeding fierce, so that no man might pass by that way. They, these men were ferocious, extremely ferocious, dangerous. People had tried to tame them, chain them up. They were too strong. They, this excessive strength that beyond the natural, right, they were gaining strength from the supernatural, in this case, from the spiritual realm. And people were just scared to go out and deal with them, even though they had tried. Verse 29, And behold, they cried out, saying, What have we to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of God? Art thou come hither to torment us before the time? Now, in Mark's Gospel, you get more information. Jesus asked, What is thy name? And the devils... Now, it's the, the men's mouths are moving, but it's the devils speaking through these men. And the devils answered Jesus and said, My name is Legion, for we are many. Notice a plural referring to himself in the singular. My name is Legion, for we are many. A legion back in these days could have anywhere from three to up to 5,000 soldiers in a legion, right? If you're looking at the Roman army. Now, I don't know if that directly correlates, right, to the number of devils that were inside of each man. But it could have been that each man had at least 1,000, maybe 3,000, 5,000 devils in him. That's just an incredible thought. Which reminds me to tell you, not everybody that's possessed with unclean spirits is going to manifest these same um, attributes. This excessive strength, living amongst the tombs, cutting themselves. They, some people only manifest one or two of these things. And sometimes, right, somebody can be possessed or uh, oppressed by an unclean spirit and manifest completely different attributes. So please don't think that this is the only way that a devil, uh, that you can recognize if someone has a devil inside of them. Now the question in verse 29, Art thou come hither to torment us before the time? That's incredible. These unclean spirits know that their fate is sealed. They are doomed and they know it. They know that one day the Messiah will come and destroy them. They know that. But they also know that there is a timing element. I hope you're listening to this. That there is a timing element to this. Why would they say, you've come to torment us before the time? They know the prophetic timeline. They have access to the Old Testament. So they are able to look and see, okay, our destruction happens over here. That's like number 542, and we're just on number 5. So we haven't reached this time yet. You know why that's important? Because right now today, people are looking at what's going on with the coronavirus and the vaccine and this quantum dot tattoo and all this other stuff. 
and saying, oh, this is the mark of the beast because we won't be able to buy or sell. Guys, do you realize the governments could issue a mark, not allow you to buy or sell, and that, that would be horrible. I'm not saying that's a good thing. I'm just saying that could happen and it may not be the mark of the beast. Right? The Antichrist could simply build off of what happens as a result of the coronavirus. So if you want to say we're in the last days, this is the mark of the beast, we're in the end, what about all the other prophecies that need to come to pass first? You've got to look at the entire prophetic timeline. Even the unclean spirits knew that. Now, back to the story, and we're going to finish in just a moment. I want to finish the chapter. The code for tonight is John 4, verse 48, for those of you that need the code. Verse 30, And when there was a good way off from them and heard of many swine, I'm sorry, and there was a good way off from them and heard of many swine feeding, a bunch of pigs out in the field. So the devils besought him, saying, If thou cast us out, suffer us to go away into the herd of swine. So this wasn't the time of their ultimate demise and that torment where they're in the lake of fire forever. That thing. It's not that yet. But he says, If you're going to cast us out, then do this. Send us into those pigs. Now, Jesus obliged. He, he did as they requested. You say, why would he give in to their demands? I don't know. Eesh. I wish I had a great answer there. I'm not sure. But verse 32, I would say this, that the Creator knows more about those pigs than those unclean spirits. Unclean spirits like to have command over a living entity, whether it's human or animal. They just want to be able to possess that body and then control the actions of that, that being, whatever it is. So they, the closest other available beings are these pigs. They said, well, let us go into them. Jesus knows the pigs won't put up with it. I don't think the unclean spirits were aware of the fact that when they go in, that those pigs would not put up with it, that the pigs would just lose their minds and run down the hill. Verse 32, He said unto them, Go, and when they were come out, they went into the herd of swine, and behold, the whole herd of swine ran violently down a steep place into the sea and perished in the waters. Now, some people would say, that the devils wanted that to happen. I don't, I see no reason to believe that they wanted that to happen. As best I can, now this is something you have to make sure you make a distinction here. Jesus knows how the pigs are going to react. Unclean spirits and the devil, they don't know the future outside of what you and I would know about the future, the things that are prophesied in the Word of God. That's as much as they know. I don't think they know the future like God does. So I, that, would, that would be the best answer as to why would Jesus go along with their request? Because he knew that these pigs aren't going to put up with it. A pig has better sense to, than to let a devil live inside of him. So as soon as that unclean spirit comes in, something goes bonkers in that pig's head. And that pig says, I'm committing, you know, hogicide. That's it. I'm, you know, it's not suicide. It's hogicide. Now, some people also turn to this to say if somebody commits suicide, this is proof that they had unclean spirits and so forth. Guys, there are cases where people struggle spiritually, and that does lead to suicide. But not every suicide comes as a result of being filled with unclean spirits. Uh, so you don't want to take this passage and try to equate it to that. Or verse 33, And they that kept them fled and went their ways into the city and told everything and what was befallen to the or possessed of the devils. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus, 
And when they saw him, they besought him that he would depart out of their coast. That's not the reaction. I must admit the first time I read the Bible, I didn't expect that. That was a shocker to me. I said, wow. You would think that they would say, thank you. Those two guys, man, they've been a menace. They were scary. We didn't, couldn't use this graveyard anymore. It was horrible. They came out, and these, in, the, in Mark's gospel, you read, the man was uh, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed, because before he was naked, now he's clothed in his right mind. He's talking normal, having a good conversation. These men are fixed. But the pigs are gone. Who knows? Hundreds, thousands of them? Gone. The pig farmers <laughs> said, man, you just cost us a lot of money. The people of the city said, man, what, what are you going to destroy next? Forget the, forget the fact that he just helped two men that no one else could help. They just completely overlooked that. And they look at what they've lost and say, we don't understand this Jesus guy. Go away. And unfortunately, I think that's how the world goes about it today, right? They don't understand Jesus completely. They just look at disciples and say, man, you're following Christ. Look at how much you've had to sacrifice or look at what you're not allowed to do and go, eh, that's too much. Away with Jesus. Strangely enough, I don't know why the Jews were busy farming pigs. I wonder if these were even Jews, right? It seems strange that a Jew would have a pig farm. But it doesn't surprise me that people would choose unclean things, pigs, rather than Jesus. All right, we're going to stop there. I know I took a couple extra minutes, but I really wanted to finish this chapter tonight. I appreciate you guys sticking around. As always, please feel free to contact me with any questions. Um, a few of you have been doing that, and you're more than welcome to continue to do so. Hope this has helped tonight. Father, thank you this evening for your time, your mercy, your grace, for all the things that we could learn. I pray that you'd help us, Lord, to apply what we've learned, especially this part about believing what you've said. Lord, help us to have that great faith. Lord, what an outstanding thing it is that you have preserved your words for us today. Right now, we can still see what you uh, revealed down through history. And Lord, it helps us know you. Lord, help us to know you better. Help us to go deeper with it. Father, please bring us back tomorrow hungry, ready to learn more. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.